The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus told his disciples a parable. Consider the fig tree and all the other trees. When their buds burst open, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Amen, I say to you. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Gospel of the Lord. I have to suppress a chuckle every time that gospel comes around this notion of Jesus talking about the buds opening on the trees and how that being a sign that spring is coming. Because where I grew up, our neighbors had a magnolia tree in their yard. I grew up in the mountains in Pennsylvania. Magnolia tree has no business ever being there. And what would happen every year is you'd get that 50-degree day in the middle of February, and that tree would think it's summer. And the buds would open. And within four or five days, all the flowers are on the ground. Um, and it's an, uh, it underscores how, on the one hand, what are simple signs to the Lord are difficult for us to read. And we want to be careful about being preoccupied with the issue of recognizing signs that indicate the consummation of all things is imminent, because the Lord himself insists repeatedly in the scriptures, you're not going to know the day and you're not going to know the hour. And the best you can do is look at signs and say, well, maybe it's close, but you're not going to know the moment. It will come upon you. And that statement of ambiguity is important because what the Lord says is don't fall into the trap thinking that if I know the day is five years from now, I've got about four and a half years not to worry. And like we do in school, and then at the last minute as the exam is approaching, I'm going to cram and make sure that I'm ready. But if we don't know the day, if we don't know the hour when we have to stand before the judge, what's the requirement? I got to be ready every day. And so these, this note of urgency in our readings is a real note of urgency in that the true Christian is ready for the coming of the consummation all things by attending to the things he needs to be about today. The judgment will come in its own time. But if we wait for that, we'll never be ready for it. And the one who preoccupies himself or herself with the business of being ready to follow God today is the one who will be ready when that moment comes. And there's a note of decisive ultimacy in our readings today, in particular the first reading, but also in the gospel reading where Jesus very bluntly says, this earth and the heavens are going to pass away. 
There is nothing that you see around you that is permanent, he says. It will all pass away. There is no mountain so mighty, there is no group of stars so majestic and so distant that they will endure forever. The universe itself will pass away. And then he says, but my word will not. And consider that for a second, the weightiness of that statement. That my word, that my teaching, the truth I give you, will endure even through the passing of this universe, even beyond the lifespan of this world. My word endures. And as remarkable as a statement like that is, it should not completely surprise us because we know whom, who it is that is speaking. And that is the one who is the very word who created all things. The very word whose power upholds all things. The very word who took flesh in the fragility of time in this passing world to save us and rescue us for an eternal world. And among those things that will pass away, we hear in our first reading is the underworld and death itself will pass away. And note how clearly that is stated in our first reading. In the midst of all of the mysterious imagery is this clear statement of death and the underworld being picked up by the Lord and thrown into the fire to be burned away. And it is as death is being burned away that one then begins to see the new heavens and the new earth come into being. A heavens and an earth that no longer suffer under the shadow of futility, that no longer groan in their fear of death. A new heavens and a new earth because the earth of injustice will be no more. The earth of poverty will be no more. The earth of hatred and indifference will be no more. Note how clearly a vision of what is to come is laid out. It's not the destruction of good, but it is the burning away of all that is evil and all that has been built upon it. And that should give us great cause for hope, but it should also give us a note of apprehension. Because just even in our own hearts and our own lives, so much is built on mixed foundations. A bit of good, a bit of selfishness. A bit of truth, a bit of dishonesty. A bit of sacrifice, a bit of convenience. And so all will be affected at the coming of that day, which is why the Lord insists, and so live today in a manner that makes you ready. And that is in no small measure why the saint whose memory we celebrate today is an important and remarkable example for us. For hundreds of years, her feast was celebrated with great relish and enthusiasm in the church, 
And then in the reform of the calendar, her faith, her, her memorial, which had already kind of begun to fall by the wayside, was not included in the renewed calendar. And a couple years before he resigned from the papal throne, Benedict XVI restored this feast day to the calendar of the church. And recognizing that, one has to pause and say, why would the Holy Father make it a point of inserting this feast day, along with a handful of others, including the Feast of the Holy Name of Our Lady, back into the calendar of the church? What is it about Catherine of Alexandria that is so remarkable and so important that the Holy Father wants to have on the calendar the option of remembering her on the 25th day of November, which is the traditional date of her martyrdom. One of the reasons is this. We celebrate Catherine as a virgin and a martyr, or as the liturgy today would call her, a virgin martyr. But that's a misleading description of this woman. Historically, the details of her life are not clear. The stories that have come down to us are so legendary as to be largely unreliable in their details. I want to stress that. Much like when we spoke about St. Cecilia the other day, but we do know she was a young woman from Alexandria from a wealthy family. She was a virgin from her youth and insisted on maintaining that as a permanent feature of her life. And she was remarkably well-educated. And the most notable thing about her and what leads to her martyrdom is not her virginity. It is her education. And she is therefore famous in the history of the church as a model of what it is to combine virtue with learning and learning with virtue. And as the main line of the stories about her go, and one of the keys to understanding older legendary accounts of the lives of the saints is this. On top of the historical details of what we know comes an overlay of remarkable examples that we can't verify. And oftentimes what these are are pious authors taking the cumulative witness of what the early martyrs did and choosing a remarkable and a well-known person to hang all of these good qualities on. And so we see this in the stories around Catherine. This educated young woman who wants to live for Christ and for him alone. She's of a noble family, an important family, a wealthy family. She's not nobody. And so when a persecution breaks out, ordered by the emperor himself against the faithful, this young woman takes it upon herself to visit the emperor. If she didn't have connections, that was never going to happen. And received into his presence, she speaks so convincingly and so 
eloquently about why what he is doing is wrong, that he is at a loss for words for how to respond to her. And so he brings in scholars, 50 of them, well-educated, well-trained rhetoricians and philosophers and debaters. And he brings them in to hear what Catherine says and to refute her. And as the main line of the story goes, and most if not all of them were converted by Catherine's arguments. And, but note, however, here, unlike so many of our modern debates, this is not an issue of debating a point of policy. This is an issue of debating the truth of Jesus Christ. And Catherine's speaking to them was not at the service of changing their mind about persecuting Christians. It was not directed to winning an argument over the sanctity of life, however important that is. It was directed to winning hearts to Jesus Christ. And to win those hearts to Jesus Christ, she knew she had to win those minds. And so she spoke and her words overcame the learning of the philosophers and the scholars, who in very short order were martyred by the emperor who brought them in to talk to Catherine. But note how this also cuts across the grain of so many of our stories about female saints who are famous for defending their virginity, which Catherine does, but less famous for the way they speak, less famous for their mastery of truth, less famous for their learning. And so it's from this that Catherine is considered one of the patrons of lawyers and philosophers. And it is not uncommon to find images of Catherine of Alexandria in seminaries. Along with Thomas Aquinas, she is, one of the, two, she is the other great patron of seminary formation. In fact, at the Seminary of the Immaculate Conception over in Huntington, in the dining area, there is a life-size statue of St. Catherine. On one side of the doorway and on the other side is a life-size statue of St. Thomas Aquinas. And seeing what is happening, the, the ruler says, if I can't out-argue her, Perhaps I can tempt her with the threat of martyrdom and of being rescued by offering my hand in marriage to her. To receive her into the throne room, into the power, into rule. And it's at this point that Catherine stands before him and says, I'm already wed to a better king than you. And I will not set that aside. But note, this wasn't an appeal to lust. This was not an appeal to sexual immorality. It was an appeal to unite yourself with me, and you will be safe, and your family will be safe. And her answer is, I'm already wed. I belong to another, and the belonging is irrevocable. And there is nothing that you offer me that will cause me to lay it aside. And so it is that in his rage, 
the king orders her to be tortured. And so a machine is built, and she's locked up in a prison while they build this terrible machine. And depending on which version of the story you read, it consists of one or four or three or two large wheels with sharpened spikes on them so that they would break her body. And so they brought Catherine in. They brought her toward that terrible machine, asked her to recant her faith, and while they were doing it, others came to talk to Catherine, well-connected in the court, and they too converted, and they too are killed. Speaking even in prison, as St. Paul does, to the truth of the faith. And as they bring her to that horrible device which the worst of human ingenuity could produce, this horrific machine designed to completely break a person, and quite literally break a person. And as they begin to put her on it and she touches the machine, it falls to pieces. And all of the cleverness and all of the engineering and all of that work devoted to the misguided production of the machinery of death simply falls at the touch of the hand of virtue. This is why the symbol of St. Catherine is a wheel. And so if you go to churches and you often see a symbol of a wheel, especially a wheel with spikes, it represents Catherine. She's also present in one of the mosaics with her wheel at the Cathedral of St. Agnes and in one of the crypt chapels at the seminary in Huntington as well. There are multiple images of Catherine there in that seminary. And once that happens, once that happens, she presents her neck to the executioner's sword and surrenders her life. It's a remarkable legend, a remarkable tale. And again, we do not want to historicize it naively. But note the kernel of truth that runs through it. The insistence of Jesus that you will stand before kings and princes and you will testify. And do not worry about what you're going to say. Don't plan ahead for that day. Be about what you need to be about. And the words will be there for you. Catherine in her studies never planned for the day she would stand before a ruler. She studied. She learned. She lived. She was faithful. And so that when the day came where she needed to place herself before a ruler, the words were there. And they were mighty words, clear words, spirit-filled words, not words that she sought for herself, but words that were given to her over those years of faithful living and careful study of her faith. And so she was ready. She lived her virtue and her union with Jesus every day so that when that moment came where she's given that terrible temptation, unite yourself with me. 
and everything will be well, and think of the way you could help your people. She is able to see the trap that is laid for her spirit, and she is able with strength to reject it. Because her union with Christ wasn't something she merely chose at the last minute. Her union with Christ is something she was living every single day. Every single day, in a sense, her life was bringing to nothing the machinery of death in her heart, in her spirit, in the way she treated others. And so it should not surprise us that there is a tale of this terrible machinery collapsing down around her. And in looking at the example of Catherine, we see something else. We see that there are so very many of those whose names we never learned, who likewise stood before kings and princes and witnessed to the truth. That there are so very many who in their engagement with the world, even as the world tried to prove their foolishness, converted the world with the clarity of their teaching and the virtue of their living. Note how much we see here. On the one hand, we remember a remarkable woman. And yet on the other hand, as we consider these legends that have grown up around her, we see through the lens of a single person the great witness of so very many saints, the great witness of so very many heroes. We don't know their names, but we know their victory. This is why it is so beautiful that section in our first reading where John cries out and says, and I saw all of those who were literally beheaded for Jesus come forward. A great number, he doesn't know their names, but he knows the strength and the power of their witness. And in considering Catherine, we are reminded once again that the word martyr does not first and foremost mean victim. It means witness. Martyrdom is testimony. Martyrdom is a witness. Martyrdom is not the mere losing of life. Martyrdom is testifying with one's life up to and including the point of giving it. Note how different that is. Because real Christian martyrdom is not the result of a moment. Rather, in a moment, a life of holiness is crystallized into one final witness, a definite act. But a definite act which is the exclamation point on a series of acts that has led up to it. And so we celebrate this young woman of whom tradition says angels carried her mortal remains to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they were received and laid to rest in the monastery that is there, St. Catherine's Monastery. And her relics are at St. Catherine's Monastery. The angels, however, were monks. Monks' robes were called angelic robes or angels' robes back then. And. Um, and it's, again, it's an understandable tradition because the white-robed monks 
would have appeared angelic, especially as they chanted, bearing the remains. Um, but what a, what a remarkable, what a remarkable figure this is, this young woman, famed for her learning, her education, her eloquence, and her ability to, with a virtuous faith, articulate the truth in a way that overcame the best intellects of her day. And this is some 1,800 years ago, maybe 1,900 years ago. And as we all know, women did not have many opportunities back then. And so her example is doubly remarkable, doubly heroic for that reason. Famed for her learning and famed for her virtue. And a tremendous example, and this is why she has always been so important for seminary formation. The combination of virtue and learning is absolutely essential for the priesthood or, in fact, for any real service of the gospel. And she is one of the original great examples of this. This, in no small measure, is why Benedict inserted her feast in the calendar and why it is absolutely wonderful that we have this example of the collapsing of the machinery of death on a day where we also hear about death itself being overcome and the old passing away and falling out of being so that the new heavens and the new earth might arrive. Amen.